Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming up on today's episode, it's our trade deadline recap show. We'll break down the Cop Appleton Sanford trades as well as Paul Stasny staying put. Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. What's good and welcome to another episode of Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Rowicki. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Rowicki or the podcast at Skates Plates Pod. All right, hope you guys had a great weekend. Obviously, plenty to get to in this episode, so we're just going to dive right on in. I don't want to waste any time here. We'll build it up slowly, so we'll get to some of the more impactful deals made by the Jets a little later on. But let's start with the first two dominoes to fall for the Winnipeg Jets. And the first one happened before deadline day even officially got underway because Kevin Chevaldeoff Made a move Sunday night after the victory over Chicago, bringing back Mason Appleton from the Seattle Kraken for just a fourth round pick. And it's funny because for anybody that's, you know, listened to the podcast all season long, I've been kind of banging the drum to bring Mason Appleton back because he just wasn't getting, wasn't, you know, he wasn't necessarily buried on the depth chart in Seattle, but he wasn't really getting a whole lot of ice time kind of stuck in between the third and fourth lines there. And I wondered if the Jets could help fill their bottom six woes by bringing Appleton back into the fold. And then Kevin Shovelayoff confirms in his presser after the deadline that, yeah, he was doing the same thing. Tried to acquire him a couple times throughout the season and eventually gets it done uh, just before, on, on deadline day eve. I absolutely love the move. I know... You know, the, the, the Jets actually ended up almost being buyers in a sense, uh, which is not necessarily a path you generally would take or expect from a team that is, you know, three, four, five points outside the playoff picture. And on top of it has just a, a 10% chance of, of getting into the postseason, give or take a few percentage points. But this is one of the rare buy moves that I think a team outside of the playoff line should take advantage of more often, right? Because it's certainly a move that helps the Winnipeg Jets this season. You know, maybe almost a, an Andrew Kopp light replacement for the Jets. But, I mean, there really isn't a whole lot of negative to this deal moving forward as well. I mean, there's not really much negative to acquiring Mason Appleton for a fourth-round pick at all. I, I'm surprised that that's all it costs, and I'm surprised more teams didn't you know, give Ron Francis a call to see if they can maybe sweeten the pot a little bit more. 
I think it's a big win for the Jets. I, I mean, you're not giving up a whole lot in terms of a draft pick. And you're getting a 26-year-old who still has two more years of RFA status. And he's a player that's performed well in Winnipeg, right? Like, you have some... You have a comfort level with him. He, there's not going to be a whole lot of adapting, right? He's just probably going to fit in pretty seamlessly and give the Jets' bottom six a bit of a jolt. I mean, he's played well with Adam Lowry the, the prior season. You know, I, I don't think he's necessarily going to produce at that level moving forward. Maybe he does uh, when he was on pace for just about 40 points in his first full season with the Winnipeg Jets. I think he's probably in between that but he's better than the season that he had with the Seattle Kraken, where he just never really seemed to, to get things going there on pace for, I think, just under 30 points this year. I think he's probably, you know, a 35-ish point guy, depending on where you slot him into the lineup. There was a little bit of discussion I saw on, on where Appleton fits in with the Winnipeg Jets. You know, is he a third liner? Is he better off in the fourth line? I'll tell you what, if Mason Appleton's on a team's fourth line, then you're you're doing just fine if you've got nine, ten forwards ahead of him that that are higher up on the, the pecking order. But I think he's a good third line guy, right? Like I, I think I think he's shown that he can be productive, defensively responsible, and then maybe pitch in on, on penalty kill if if it comes to that. I I have no problem whatsoever. I have a lot of time for a guy like Mason Appleton being on on my team's third line, let's just say that. But the other nice wrinkle that a guy like Mason Appleton adds, and and it's why I like this deal so much, and the price wasn't all that much to give up for the Winnipeg Jets, is that you know when you're building a forward core in today's NHL, you really need two difficult-to-acquire things. The first, obviously, is elite high-end talent. The most difficult to acquire. You basically have to draft it. You have to draft it or, or luck into a trade. Like There's very few ways to get elite high-end forwards. Thankfully, the Winnipeg Jets have checked that box off, and they've got a, you know almost a half dozen of those in the fold right now. But the other part is finding complementary players on either an ELC or a bargain contract. Those little pieces here and there is what can really elevate a forward group from maybe just good to great or top five in the NHL, right? Like that's that's the key. We've seen Florida do a really good job of that these past couple of seasons. You know, finding guys like Duclair and Carter Verhage and, you know, a few others there. You know, Tampa Bay made a, an entire third line that basically made under two million bucks. And the list kind of goes on and on and on. Colorado's got a bunch of them as well. Pittsburgh, you know, craps out guys that make very little money, but help their star players contribute. And, and then maybe, you know, the Zach Hyman, Mike Bunting thing we've seen in Toronto these past couple of seasons illustrate just how important a guy like that can be. I think Mason Appleton can be that kind of player. You know, he's never going to be a, a 50 or a 60 point guy at the NHL level. But what a guy like Mason Appleton can do. What a guy like, I think, Evgeny Sveshnikov can and still will do if, if the Jets give him the opportunity. They can allow you to spread the wealth out inside your top nine. You don't necessarily have to go top six, bottom six, right? You can trust a guy like that to play with some skilled players, provide a bit of an offensive jolt. And you know what? You, you turn a, a good top six into a really great top nine. And then you have a Cole Perfetti on an ELC as well next season to to add into the mix there. And then, hey, maybe Jansen Harkins, 
you know, builds off that Chicago game and takes another step forward, right? It's it's just, it's really, really important. They're the unheralded building blocks of successful teams in the salary cap era. And I think Mason Appleton was a really, really savvy get by Kevin Chevaldeoff, regardless of where the Winnipeg Jets are in the standings. So, you know, when we're talking about deadline day, headed into the deadline, I think it was a really, really big step forward in the right direction. And it looked like the Winnipeg Jets were, you know, kind of off to the races and and maybe finding themselves in that vaunted winners category of the trade deadline with their trade for Mason Appleton. Then we get to deadline day. And again, Chevy is, you know, kind of quick off the draw, making another move, albeit a very, very minor one. Nathan Beaulieu heads to Pittsburgh. Hey, I I mean, look, I'm surprised that the Jets were able to essentially get anything for Nathan Beaulieu. I mean, injured, seventh or eighth defenseman, makes, not you know, not a ton of money, obviously, but a little bit more change that, you know, contending teams might want to earmark for higher impact pieces. I'm surprised the Jets were even able to move and find a suitor. For Nathan Beaulieu, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to break down in this trade. It's a seventh-round pick, conditional seventh-round pick. This one's just funny to me because Ron Hextall <laughs> finds somebody who will love and protect you like Ron Hextall will with his seventh-round picks. The I won't get into all the conditions here, but there's <laughs> for the Jets to receive a seventh-round pick, essentially, Nathan Beaulieu has to play in half the game's of a Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cup championship run. That that's basically what it boils down to. So it's just it's funny to me that you know Ron Hextall makes a pretty innocuous move grabbing a guy like Nathan Beaulieu, but he puts in all these conditions and earmarks in place when in reality that seventh round pick would literally be the last selection of the trap, right? So you need you have to jump through all these hoops just in case the 210th pick of the NHL draft ultimately pans out. You, you don't want to leave the bag hanging if you're Ron Hextall there. So I I just find that funny at the very least. So then we go from 7th round pick to a 5th round pick. But this time it's the Winnipeg Jets moving the draft pick out. And and maybe surprisingly, I would, I would say the Jets ship out a 5th rounder for Zach Sanford. From the Ottawa Senators. I, I thought Sanford actually still played for the St. Louis Blues. Uh, but no, the Blues shipped him off to Ottawa last offseason. Uh, but the Jets grabbed Zach Sanford for a draft pick. Kind of an odd move for a team that's in the spot where the Winnipeg Jets are in the standings right now. Look, I I don't... It's not a disastrous trade or anything like that. I'm not going to sit here and, you know... Stephen A. Smith hot take you to death about how the Jets screwed this up and, and shouldn't be moving any picks of, of any kind for a player. You know, it is a fifth-round pick. It, it likely is going to hold no significance. But, you know, I wouldn't be moving out picks to grab guys like Zach Sanford to fill out the bottom of my roster. But it sounds like a guy that Chevy's been targeting for quite some time. And it kind of fits the mold. We heard this a few times throughout the press conference after the deadline from Chevy, but it sounds like the Jets made a concerted effort to get bigger, get more difficult to play against, and add that much-needed physicality element inside their bottom six. And, and hey, Zafford brings that in a big way. He's a big boy. You know, 6'4", 207. He's, he's going to add a ton of physicality to the bottom of the Winnipeg Jets forward lineup. I, I just, you know, when, when you're a team that's, in the spot where the Winnipeg Jets are, that's not a move I'm looking to make. But ultimately, I'm you know I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I I, I don't really have strong feelings 
one way or the other. It, it'll, it's a move that would make more sense if the Jets do re-sign Zach Sanford. You're finding a you know relatively cheap option, a, a guy that's been on a deep playoff run at least, that you can plug into your fourth line there. If that's the case, then I don't mind it as much as, you know, 10 hours after it happened. Uh, but the interesting thing is that, you know, Kevin Chevalier maybe tipped his hand a little bit that, that Sanford isn't a fourth-line player for the Jets as of right now. That they want to see what he can do with Adam Lowry when Adam Lowry comes back into the lineup. So some interesting lineup options for the Winnipeg Jets here. I mean, it, the top six is pretty set at this point, I think. But some options for Dave Lowry to look at. I mean, Jansen Harkins is coming off a two-goal game. Svechnikov has been, you know, underrated, in my opinion, all season long and, and kind of sneaky good. But it does seem like the Jets don't necessarily value him the same way a lot of fans do. And then Mason Appleton as well thrown into the mix, right? Like there's there, there's an intriguing stable of wingers that the Winnipeg Jets could cobble together as the team's third line and, you know, ultimately the fourth line here. I'll be intrigued to see how it looks. I, you know, for me, I would rather see a guy like Zach Sanford on the fourth line, and then you could have a third line of Svechnikov and Mason Appleton. I think that, and you still get some size there too. You know, Appleton's 6'2", and, and Svechnikov is basically the same size as Zach Sanford. You know, maybe he just doesn't throw around the big hit enough, but that, that, that's not a small third line either if you have Appleton, Lowry, and Svechnikov, and that would then give you a fourth line or at the very least, fourth-line wingers in Jansen Harkins and Zach Sanford. And then you can have, you know, Adam Brooks or whoever else you want to throw in there when everybody's, you know, fully healthy. That's the way I would go. I'll be sh I'll be kind of surprised if we see Svechnikov stick and stay with uh, Lowry and Sanford on that third line there. Would like to see Svech and Appleton get a look together, but we'll see how it goes. Either way, you know, Sanford isn't... At the very least, if you're going to get a guy to fill the the size and physicality quota, you know, at, at least have some skill to go along with it. And, and Sanford does that. He's got a he's got a really really good shot. You know, doesn't move super well on the ice, but he is a good finisher and he's good defensively as well. He's killed penalties in the past. Maybe he fills helps to fill the void left by Andrew Kopp at the very least. But I think Sanford's a fine addition. Doesn't really move the needle all that much, and you know, ultimately that's why the Jets. Had to give up just a fifth-round pick to do so. So that kind of takes care of the, the minor deals of deadline day for the Jets. Three other, well, two other moves of significance, and then one non-move of significance that we'll get to in just a sec here. But before we do that, let's give a quick shout-out to our friends over at DraftKings, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. I get a big chance for all you hockey fans to win big with DraftKings Sportsbook because new customers can bet just a single dollar on any team and get 150 in free bets if they win. On top of that, too, you can still win for free every single day with huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Hockey Contest if Sportsbook is not available where you're at just yet. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN. Bet just $1 on any NHL team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. 21 or older, restrictions apply. Check out the show notes for details. 
excuse my uh, puberty there at the end of that. Uh, so three other topics to get to from trade deadline day for the Winnipeg Jets. This was one that I don't think anybody saw coming. But Brian Little, or, or I should say Brian Little's contract gets moved along with, you know, I'll say highly touted, I guess, highly touted prospect, prospect Nathan Smith. Out over to the Arizona Coyotes where, you know, LTIR contracts ultimately find a way to end up at some point sooner or later for a fourth round pick heading back the Winnipeg Jets way. So fourth round pick out for Mason Appleton, fourth round pick back in for Little's contract and prospect Nathan Smith. I mean, ultimately, this deal is just kind of sad to me, you know, on on, on a number of different situations. I don't, I don't think the Jets lost on this deal but it's just sad for one the reminder that you know Brian Little is clearly never going to play in the NHL ever again and a, a a really really productive career cut short by an absolute freak injury so I mean that sucks and it sucks that you know he's not going to get a chance to have one final send-off as a player for the Winnipeg Jets he's going to sign a one-day contract when he retires and comes back to Winnipeg but would have been nice to see him finish career out there on the ice, but, you know, he's got a family, a ton, a ton of life left to live, so obviously you understand the situation that he's in. But that that part of it was sad. And then the other part is that the Jets find themselves on the run end of the stick when it comes to a college prospect. And it's it's a touchy subject, this whole college prospect finds a way to muscle his way into another location. A lot of people have some strong feelings about this one. But Nathan Smith, a Hobie Baker finalist this year, by the way, who had a tremendous, tremendous season in college, basically informs the Winnipeg Jets, you know what, the fit isn't there for me, and I would make the move right now to trade me if you want to get something back, or else I'll be an unrestricted free agent, as Chevy pointed out, in 30 days. So you can get something... For me right now, or I'll just walk and pick my location in just over a month. Where the options for the Winnipeg Jets, and they take the opportunity, and you know, kind of crazy too that they did this in such a quick turnaround. But just two days ago is when the Jets found out about this. I don't know if they had talks with Arizona about Brian Little's contract, and you know, maybe trying to work something out beforehand. But it's a quick turnaround, and you know, just a couple of days to to phone the Coyotes up, say. We got something that I think could work for both parties here, and and they find a way to hammer out a deal pretty quickly. But a lot of people I saw, you know, I, I sent out a tweet that got a lot of a lot of responses. Um, but it just looked to me like a lot of people were either upset, filled with angst, angry a little bit at the fact, or, or maybe even just worried too. On top of it, that you know this is just another sign that players don't want to play here in Winnipeg. And when you have a highly touted prospect like this, it's a it's a really it's a really scary sign that you might see more and more players pull stunts like this with the Winnipeg Jets. I mean, look, we'll we'll get to the whole college players using this route and and, and flexing some of their uh, I, I guess personal freedom here in just a sec. But I really don't think this is a Winnipeg Jets issue. I don't think this is something that the club necessarily needs to worry about as a harbinger of, of bad things to come here. 
Because the Jets have had a pretty damn good track record when it comes to college draft picks and finding a way to get them signed, right? Like, I mean, off the top of my head. I mean, obviously, Jacob Truba has a first-round pick. Andrew Cobb over at the University of Michigan. A similar draft profile to Nathan Smith, at least. Cobb, either a third or a fourth-round pick. The Winnipeg Jets are able to get him signed and get him into the lineup relatively quickly. Tucker Pullman. Again, you know, a defenseman, but a similar sort of a profile, a bit of a late bloomer, had the option to potentially test the free agent waters, but decided to sign with the Winnipeg Jets, gets a couple years of service, and then signs a decent-sized long-term deal with the Vancouver Nucks because of that. You know, as, as far as I know, this is the first time it's happened to the Winnipeg Jets that they've had a college player of this stature spurn them. And decide to, you know, do whatever, do, do what's best for them in their career and sign elsewhere instead of going back to the team that drafted them. I think this is just the nature of the business when it comes to overager college prospects on teams. Every team is going to lose one or two of these guys, you know, let, let's just say every decade. You're just, you're going to lose a couple guys and it sucks. But there's just a lot of examples on, on teams in much better locations than Winnipeg, right? That, you know what, sometimes players will just, at that point in their careers, would rather pick and choose where they want to play as opposed to going back to the team that drafted them. Look, Kevin Hayes did the same thing. A lot of people forget Chicago drafted him as a first rounder, yet he decided that he wanted to go play in New York for a few seasons. Chicago had to move on from him. Obviously, the Adam Fox situation is extremely well-known. He forces his way to New York from a couple of different teams to get to the spot that he wants to go. The Jimmy VC sweepstakes, right? Nashville had him, wanted him. He heads out the door, though. And then, you know, on the same day, you have the McBain kid from Minnesota, another highly touted prospect, somebody that I, I wondered if the Winnipeg Jets would take a run at acquiring. But he wants out, too, and, and he joins Nathan Smith over there in Arizona as well, right? So I... I I don't think this is a Winnipeg Jets problem. I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily avoid drafting college prospects in, say, the middle round just because of what happened with Nathan, Nathan Smith here. It happens to every team. It doesn't necessarily happen as often as you think, and it just sucks, but you have to bite the bullet on this every once in a while. And, you know, unfortunately, the Winnipeg Jets do everything right, and they get... Very little, if if anything, nothing from this whole situation. Now, I do, you know, a lot of people mention this is something that the NHL should outlaw moving forward. That, you know what, if a team drafts you, if you're a college kid, you can't force your way into a different location just because you're 23, 24 years old and you're, you're trying to use some some leverage, which players generally have very little of in their first few years in the NHL. And look, it... It sucks for teams, right? Like, I mentioned all those players I mentioned there. It sucks when teams draft a gem, especially ones after the first round, develop them, spend time, money, assets, watching them, helping them grow in their career, only to immediately benefit a different team, and, and there's very little coming back the other way for it. That, that it, It's brutal, and it does suck. But at the same time, like I mentioned there, players just have so little leverage that I'm I'm always I always kind of lean towards their sides when they can exert something and you know what 
try to better or improve their career any way that they can. And I, I just think these options are a lot less frequent than people really do think it is. Like, it generally is late bloomers that this happens to. I mean, Nathan Smith is, I believe, 24 years old. So, you know, it does suck that the Jets lose him. There may not also be a ton of development for him moving forward as well. But it would be one thing if, you know, first-round pick after first-round pick after first-round pick, you know, plays out their first three years in college and then signs with whoever they want. I think at that point, it would need to be something that's addressed. But I just feel like there's these are more the anomalies than, than what happens on a regular basis in terms of college-drafted players. It may be something where in the future, if it's a tie between a kid in college and a kid in the WHL, that you take the dub kid because you just you have more control and, and he has less options. And maybe that might be the deciding choice. But if you think you're drafting a hell of a kid in the third round, that's, you know, a first or a second round talent and he's going to college, you, you take the risk. You might lose him in a couple of years, but you have faith that you're going to find a way to convince them to... Show a bit of loyalty, stick with a team that drafted and believed in you, and then you're able to build out a nice partnership after that. So, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a sucky trade for the Jets in a number of aspects that this had to happen, but at the very least, they're able to get a little bit of assets back from this. You know, the fourth round pick is is what it is. It's, it's not something that's necessarily going to move the needle for the Jets, but you get another lottery ticket. And you get a bit more flexibility moving Brian Little's contract. And, and just for those wondering, I got a couple questions on this. Because some people were asking, you know, isn't putting Little on ITR an advantage for the Jets? Because essentially, you get an extra five plus mil in cap space to work with? And the answer is like yes and no, right? Technically, yes, you would get up to or you want to try to get as close to that $5 million in this case of Brian Little's cap hit as possible, and you can exceed the cap by that number. Like, that part is true. But the reason why teams generally try to stay away from it is it really, really limits your flexibility. It limits your flexibility in season when it comes to call-ups. You know, if you don't have any cap space, sometimes if injuries mount, you can't call players up because even though they make very little money, you don't have that much cap space because you're in long-term injured reserve relief. And the other negative is that you can't bank cap space, right? We, we know how teams at the deadline may have 800000 in actual cap space, but because it built up over the course of a season, it ends up being, I don't know, three mil, four, whatever it is, right? But you, you get my drift here. You can't do that when you're in LTIR, right? If you dip into that, you don't get to bank cap space. And then at the deadline, you are you can be somewhat limited in terms of the deals that you can make. So, you know, it's it, it's not, I, I don't know. I, I think in a perfect world, you operate away from that. But you can be creative and, and use that to your advantage. Like we've seen teams like Tampa Bay. We've seen teams like Toronto. We've seen teams like Vegas go out there, acquire guys like that. And then you have to play a bunch of cap gymnastics that I think most of us would uh, have our brains rot if, if we tried to do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I do understand. It's just, I, I think the more flexibility is more important than trying to do some gymnastics and finding a way to fit that much into your cap space and things like that. So for those wondering, that's why GMs, that's why the Winnipeg Jets went this route. 
in terms of moving Brian Little's contract and, and going away from relying on LTIR. Now the big moves to the deadline for the Winnipeg Jets. Well, we'll get to the one that actually happened. But lots of speculation. It took a while for the return to come in. But ultimately, Andrew Cobb joins his former teammate, or his ex-teammate, now current teammate, Jacob Truba, out in the Big Apple. The Jets move Cobb to the New York Rangers. The return is a couple of conditional second-round picks, prospect Morgan Barron, and then a little bit of late-round picks thrown back and forth the other way. But ultimately, we'll just call it two conditional second-round picks and prospect Morgan Barron to make this, you know, a little bit easier to dive into. Now, I had said leading up to the trade deadline, I mean, one, I thought Cop was going to go to Tampa Bay. Immediately, they pivoted and went to Brandon Hagel. I actually thought Paul Stasi was going to go to the New York Rangers. So, you know, yeah, I'll give myself half points on that one. But I mentioned that, you know, Kevin Chevalier should be able to get a first-round pick back for Andrew Cop. Clearly, the Jets did not do that, assuming the conditions of the deal for one of those second-round picks aren't met. That doesn't necessarily make this a bad haul for the Winnipeg Jets. I mean, you can make the case, actually, and I think I would do that, that what the Winnipeg Jets got from the New York Rangers exceeds a first-round pick in terms of value, or, or at the very least is comparable, right? So I, I would say this was a damn good haul for Kevin Chevaldeoff on this one. Now, I don't think... I think it's fair to say when we look at this trade that it really is two second-round picks and Morgan Barron for Andrew Cobb. I mean, sure, the Rangers could go to the conference finals. I don't think it's likely they're going to be underdogs if they face the Penguins and the Hurricanes in both of those series. But they do have, you know, Igor Shosturkin, so they've got a fighter's chance in both at the very least. But let's just, you know, for what it is, say a couple of second-round picks and then Morgan Barron. I think I would take that over just a first-round pick from the Rangers, right? I I, I don't I don't mind the haul that Kevin Chevalier got, and I think he I think he played this one pretty good. You know, a little bit close to the deadline, extracting as much value as possible from the New York Rangers. In this case, totally okay that a first-round pick wasn't what came back Winnipeg's way for Andrew Cobb. Interesting again, you know, we talked about this with the Zach Sanford deal and, and Chevalier mentioning this, but. You know, again, an emphasis placed on on size and physicality in this because Morgan Barron, he's he's a big, big, big boy, <laughs> right? He's he's he might make Adam Larry look a little tiny down the middle there. He's six listed at six four, two twenty, but there's a decent amount of offense in his game, at least at the AHL level. He was a point a game player in the AHL the previous season. This season, fifteen points. In 25 games, I believe he was used as a net front guy on the power play for Hartford as well. So, hey, th there is a bit of offensive potential there. Ultimately, though, I kind of see Morgan Barron's ceiling at, at the absolute max being a third-line center. But he might be, he might, he might, it might end up being David Gustafson versus Morgan Barron for this team's fourth-line center next year. And I, I don't mind that at all. I mean, Barron is... You know, going to be 24 by the time next season rolls around. So you're, you're talking about a player that's, you know, extremely physically developed, obviously, but could probably be NHL ready maybe this season, but definitely next year. Or you go with David Gustafson, who's kind of lit the AHL on fire as a as a 19, 20-year-old. 
But either way, you're going to have size down the middle of the fourth line next year. And you're going to have youth there as well and a, and a bit of offensive capability. So that kind of checks off all the boxes for me as to as to kind of a modern age fourth line. So that's pretty exciting, at least, that we might move away from the, the Nate Thompson and the Riley Nash molds when it comes to the fourth line for the Jets next season. And then you get the second round picks back. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be players here, right? It's just a few more assets. For the Winnipeg Jets to work with in an offseason that, man, it's just going to be so, so intriguing what what direction the Jets want to go in. Because there are a few different paths that they can take, you know, both either a retool, reload, or maybe even a, a semi-rebuild, if you will. But it's always good to have a few more picks at your disposal here. So, again, all in all, really like the job that Kevin Chevaldeoff did with Andrew Kopp in this one. Will be intriguing to see how the Jets go about replacing what Cop gave the team. Because, hey, look, he wasn't a no doubt about it top liner. Some people might say not even a, a top six guy, but the fact remains is he played a ton of minutes for the team, right? Like he was obviously entrusted by the coaching staff to do a lot, almost getting 20 minutes a night over the course of this season, right? I mean, power play, penalty kill, five on five. He's He was a big piece, and I'll be intrigued to see how the time on ice gets allotted now that, that Andrew Kopp isn't here and who maybe sees their responsibilities increased with a chance on you know, all three phases of the game for the Jets. But Kopp, too, as we all know, great penalty killer, and with the change in systems or maybe the change in tactics by the Jets was a big, big part in them being as stingy as they have been shorthanded in the second half of this season so it's it's a it is a loss for the Jets there's there's no doubt about it but if you're going to lose a guy like Andrew Kopp at least take full advantage of that and that's what the Winnipeg Jets here and I think getting at the very least first round value in their deal with the New York Rangers having said that go Rangers get to the conference finals make it a first round pick and a second round pick and then all of a sudden things get really really interesting and and makes that trade a major win for the club so good job by Chevy on that one. Unfortunately, we have to end on a negative and a poor job by Kevin Chevaldeoff on this, in my opinion. And it's not a trade, but a lot of people thought, I mean, I hey, I, I'm shocked that Paul Stastny is still a member of the Winnipeg Jets. And I think a lot of you guys are too. It just, you know, you're, you're moving out your pending UFAs. I mean, Cobb goes out, Bolu goes out. It, it kind of just, you know, hey, make a three for three here and, and find Paul Stasny a new home and pick up, you know, probably another second-round pick of the process. But Kevin Shoveldayoff did did not see it that way. I'll, I'll get into why I just I, I I can't get behind the move whatsoever. But I think it's always important, and I wanted to kind of withhold any immediate judgment in this case because I wanted to know what Kevin Shoveldayoff had as his reasoning for this. So here's Chevy and his deadline day presser when asked by Murata Tej of the Athletic. You know, why didn't you move all your pending UFAs and why did Paul Stastny stay? Well, Paul Stastny for us is, uh, you know, is a key piece, um, you know, from, from this organization standpoint that, um, you know, he, he can do so many things. And you talk about the flexibility of playing wing and playing center, um, you know, and just the, the, the leadership and the experience in the room. Um, you know, I, I, there, there, was, there was, you know, I can tell you I didn't have any conversations about moving um, Stas. And uh, because he's he's that important for us, if we we want a shot, you know, to to make it into you know the playoffs here, we, we need him. You know, I I got in trouble on twelve ninety back in the day for, for, for using certain words to describe 
how the Winnipeg Jets went about business. So I'm not going to do that out, out of habit. But this is just, it's really short-sighted thinking here. And I just, I can't get behind the, the logic in this by the Jets. I, and look, I agree that Stasny is a big part of the team. He's still impactful at 36 years old. A ton of intangibles. And just, you know, to, to put it bluntly and, and, and simply, he's, he's a hell of a player. Like, I, I get why you don't necessarily want to want to rush to the door and, and move somebody like that out. But you know what? To, to chase a 10% chance of squeaking into the postseason, I, I just don't know why. I just don't know why you hold on to an asset like Paul Stasny when you can get something as good as a second-round pick coming back for him. You know, I, I don't care if... Certain members of the team would be upset if Stasny's being traded, a la Blake Wheeler, who's obviously tight with, with Paul Stasny, because it's not the player's job to, to manage the team. That's the general manager's job. And you know what? A- asset management is a huge part of being a GM, and I think Chevy missed the ball big time on this one. You know, it's it's not, and again, it, it, it's not as egregious as if the team kept Andrew Kopp. But it's still a misstep for me. And, and even, you know, even if Paul Stasny re-signs with the team, which would certainly mitigate the damage of, of not moving him out a little bit here, I, I just, I disagree with the line of thinking. That I guess that's kind of the main thing. It's, it's not a great process. You might end up getting good results out of this, but the process wasn't sound in here. And I'm saying this as, as the unofficial member of the, or founding member of the Paul Stasny fan club. Like, I, I just, I think he's a tremendous player. But you, you have to just take a cold, hard look at your team, where they're at. And really, you know, I, I think punt on this season a little bit, right? You, you, you can't have the playoffs. If you make the playoffs, great. But you can't do it at the expense of missing out on picking up some valuable draft capital for a guy like Paul Stasny. And Kevin Chevalier really didn't even test the market for him whatsoever. We, we don't know how many teams could have been interested and in, in how desperate they might have been to bring a guy like Stasny into the fold too, right? You, you don't even do your due diligence to part with Cheviism here to see what that trade might have brought in here. So I, uh, I, I don't get it. I like, I like Paul Stasny. I'm okay if he's a Winnipeg Jet again next season, but I think an opportunity was certainly missed for the Jets to pick up a few more assets as they uh, attempt, I, I believe, an aggressive retool for this upcoming offseason. Now, having said that, there's still a decent chunk of the regular season to go here before we get to that point. And, and now the Jets really pivot to trying to chase down a few teams for that final playoff spot. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Jets fans, I think, wanted to see the team drop a few games before the deadline to ensure that guys like Kopp and Stasny were moved out for high draft picks. And I was kind of in that boat as well. But now it's all of a sudden a quick pivot to, well, hey, maybe maybe, maybe a run to the playoffs could happen, if even if the odds makers don't necessarily see it that way. You know, the Jets are just at a point in the standings right now where, they're really not going to move back a whole lot. Like the the teams that are below them in the standings are well below them. They're kind of stuck in potentially drafting, you know, 12th, 13th, 14th, somewhere in that range, whether or not they win a ton of games down the stretch or whether or not they go 500 or whatever it is. So if the draft position is kind of set in stone somewhat, 
eh, well, why not get hot, try to sneak in, and then maybe see what happens here. So that that's that's where the, I guess, mindset shifts moving forward here for the last 20 games for the Jets because, you know what, you look at who went in and who went out of the deadline, you know, you lose Andrew Kopp, you lose a fifth-round pick, and you lose, I mean, Nathan Beaulieu, even though he was not assumed to come back, and the Jets get Mason Appleton, Zach Sanford, I mean, a fourth-round pick as well, but you could make the case that the Jets are, you know, I don't want to say necessarily a better team, but maybe more more balanced, a little deeper, and you still have Paul Stasny in the fold for this season. So I'll, I'll be very intrigued to see how the Winnipeg Jets react to this because, I mean, Chevy made it pretty clear. Yeah, Yes, you move, you know, your biggest asset in Andrew Kopp, but you can't call the Jets sellers at the deadline, right? And I, I'll just be intrigued to see what the response is from the players before the game and then what the response is like in terms of effort, in terms of, Defensive commitment in terms of all that stuff in the final 20 games as they try to chase down the Golden Knights and the Dallas Stars and maybe even the Vancouver Canucks as well and try to grab that final wildcard spot in the Western Conference. So it'll be interesting as we move forward here because the trade deadline will be officially in the rear view and we'll see what the semi-new look Winnipeg Jets can try to pull off beginning immediately in their next game, which is quite possibly this season. Maybe, maybe we'll find out, you know, Tuesday night if, if you want to go into, you know, tank mode for the Winnipeg Jets or try to find a way to squeak into the playoffs. But a matchup once again with the Vegas Golden Knights coming up Tuesday night at home and then some pretty juicy ones for the Jets after that. Ottawa, Columbus, Arizona, Buffalo. Hey, look, crappy teams, but the Jets have struggled with those those caliber of teams this year. So so maybe we shouldn't jump the gun too much on, on penciling in some victories there. But tell you what, if you beat Vegas on Tuesday, there's the potential for the Jets to make this thing really interesting by the time the calendar flips over to April here. So that's what we'll get to when we come back to our next episode, which will be on Friday, looking back at games against Vegas. And then a Thursday night matchup against the Ottawa Senators at home as well. So we'll wrap things up for today's episode there. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Skates and Plates on the Hockey Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brandon Rowicki. Again, we'll be back at it Friday morning, breaking down the Jets' matchups against the Vegas Golden Knights and the Ottawa Senators. Until then, though, guys, enjoy the rest of your week. Stay safe out there as well. Peace.